0: Good morning. If you would, take your copy of the Bible and turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, and if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you there, you'll find that on page 1001. My name is Stephen Storr, and I serve as the executive pastor here at the church. And uh, today we're taking a break from Pastor Burt's series from the book of Acts, and it's my joy to guide us today in considering Hebrews chapter 1. Our men's Bible study on Wednesday nights is studying Hebrews this fall. And I know that already in the early weeks of this study, uh, the study has been a blessing to the men, and I hope that this text will be a blessing uh, to you as a church today. I was tempted to entitle this sermon, Hebrews chapter 1, colon, yes, the whole chapter, because every time this week somebody would ask me what text I was preaching and I would say Hebrews 1, I think almost every time the person responded, the whole chapter? and would say, yes, the whole chapter. So, and I'm actually going to go a tad further. Uh, we're going to uh, include Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 to kind of round out the uh, author's thought process. So bear with me, we're going to cover a lot of ground today, but uh, you know sometimes there's benefit in really slowing down in a passage and studying every single phrase and word, and there's other benefit in looking at big, uh, big chunks of Scripture, and so today we're going to look at uh, this whole chapter. Uh, the very simple idea of the text is this, I'm to make three simple statements, God spoke by His Son, God exalted His Son, pay attention to His Son. So God spoke by his son, God exalted his son, pay attention to his son. So those are the ideas being communicated here, and that'll be the outline for the sermon as well. So uh, please follow along as I read for us, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, you have indeed spoken to us by your Son, who is your very Word. And as we now consider your written Word, would you illuminate it by your Spirit so that we might hear and take to heart the things you are saying to us. We pray in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, Aliens are back. That's right. Little green men, flying saucers. Think of UFOs in the 1940s in Roswell, New Mexico. Maybe you grew up in the 90s like I did. You might think of X-Files and Men in Black. In recent months, our own Congress has held hearings on this idea of unexplained aerial phenomenon. A few weeks ago, a guy in Mexico presented to the Mexican Congress what he said were the thousand-year-old mummified bodies of aliens. Now, those were proven to be false and discredited, but this is a fascination that's coming to the front of our imagination again. But it's not just the the crazy kind of tinfoil hat types that are thinking about these things. Did you know that in California, there's a scientific organization called SETI, S-E-T-I, The Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, have an annual budget of $18 million, they operate this massive array of antennas that are trained on the sky, and they are listening. They're listening day and night for some sign that there might be some kind of intelligent life out there beyond our planet. Carl Sagan was a renowned astronomer and cosmologist, and he was also a prominent atheist. So he believed there is no God, only the material universe. But that didn't stop him from trying to find transcendent meaning and purpose in life. He said, the discovery of extraterrestrial life would fundamentally change our understanding of our place in the universe and our prospects for the future and it would give humanity a common goal a common hope a common dream. Dr. Sagan illustrated what the Bible describes of unbelieving humanity that we we all know intuitively that there is something out there greater than us. More precisely there is someone out there greater than us. We want to find that someone so that we can have purpose and meaning and ultimate hope in our lives. Well, friends, the reality is that the someone who is out there is our creator. He is God, and he has not remained out there. If he had done that, if he had stayed at a distance, we would never be able to find him. No, he has come here to us. He has visited us. He has spoken to us. And so the question we are confronted with is, Will we listen to what he has spoken? The book of Hebrews is somewhat unique in the New Testament in that we don't know who the human author is and we can only make an educated guess as to exactly when it was written. Uh, It has been recognized as authoritative scripture by the Christian church from the beginning and it is a magnificent book. It seems to have been written to a largely Jewish audience, it contains a number of themes. Among them, the theme that Christ is better than the Old Covenant. It also contains repeated warnings to Christians uh, to remain steadfast and not to fall away from the faith. And we see these themes even in these opening paragraphs. So, this first chapter of Hebrews tells us that God has spoken to us in many ways, and finally, in an ultimate and best way. And it warns us, now that He has spoken, we must listen. We must pay careful attention to what he has said. So, the sermon outline, as mentioned, God spoke by the Son, verses 1 and 2. God exalted the Son, verses 3 through 14. Third, pay attention to the Son, in chapter 2, verse 1. So, consider first, God spoke by the Son, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Friends, the first thing we should marvel at here in this passage is that our God is a God who speaks. Because if he had not spoken, we would be without hope. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 says, God has put eternity into man's heart Yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Or Job chapter 11, 7 and 8 asks this question, Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? We cannot find God. So God has spoken to us. Now, it is not a foregone conclusion that God would speak to us, and we should stop and ponder this from time to time. God did not have to speak to us. Indeed, the pagan gods do not speak. You think of Elijah and the prophets of Baal and the confrontation there in First Kings 18. Who would respond? Would it be Baal? Would it be Yahweh, the God of Israel? We read there that the prophets of Baal did their best. It says, They called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And as midday passed, they raved on, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. But this is not what the one true God is like. Yahweh did hear. He did respond with great power and might to Elijah's prayer. Psalm 50, verse 3, our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. God used to come in the pillar of cloud to the tent of meeting and Moses would be allowed to enter. Exodus 33 says that the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And surely, that must be as good as it gets, right? That God would allow his people to have one representative to enter into his presence, and God would speak to that representative of the people. Couldn't get any better than that, could it? But what does Hebrews say? Long ago, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. You see, it did get better. God was not satisfied to speak to one representative of his people. He was not satisfied to speak through the intermediaries of the prophets. There was a time in salvation history when that was the best that God's people experienced. But no, our God is so kind and so loving and so gracious that he went even further and as his salvation plan continued to unfold the father sent his son to speak even more fully and more personally than anyone thought would be possible what did the father say at the transfiguration this is my son listen to him he's here to speak to you pay attention to what he's saying Consider how the the Sermon on the Mount is introduced in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew writes, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus himself said, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What a marvelous thing that our God speaks. He is not silent. He has spoken, not in some mystical way, not just as a disembodied voice from the sky, but He has spoken as a human being. He has spoken through His Son. His Word made flesh. Continuing in our text, in verses two and three, the author of Hebrews wants to impress upon us the magnitude of the reality that God has spoken by his Son. So in these verses, the author makes seven statements, and we have this sevenfold description of the Son. Now, this is where it'd be easy to slow down and ponder each of these, and actually this slide is for in a few moments uh, when we get to the next verses, so we'll come back to that in a second. But these first seven statements about the Son, we would do well to study each of these on their own. So maybe this week uh, in your personal devotions in the morning or maybe after dinner with your family, uh, you could look at these verses and maybe consider each phrase that's used here to describe Jesus. Uh, I'm just going to briefly walk through these in verses 2 and 3. The first thing we see, the Son is the heir of all things. Verse 2, the Son is the heir of all things. So inheritance language is used throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, God gave the inheritance of land to his people. And how much greater now is this inheritance promised to the Son, who is the recipient of all things? Second, it was through the Son that God created the world. It was through the Son that God created the world. So the Son is the agent of creation, we might say. All things were created for him because all things were created through him. Third, he is the radiance of the glory of God in verse 3. So if something radiates heat, that means that heat just proceeds from it, projects outward from it. Uh, one commentator uses the word outshining to explain the idea of radiance here. So the glory of God projects outward from the sun. Fourth, the sun is the exact imprint of God's nature, in verse three. You might think of a a metal die that creates a a stamp, perhaps making a coin, and the exact imprint is made. Jesus said, if you've seen Him, you've seen the Father. Exact imprint. Fifth, the Son presently upholds the universe by the word of His power. In Him, all things hold together, as it says in Colossians. One of my kids asked the question recently, once life has begun, does it just continue Automatically on its own. It's a pretty deep question. It's a great question, and the answer is no. Anything that has existence, anything that has life, anything that has being, uh, it continues to exist because it is sustained by the sun. The theological word for that is providence—that that, that uh, the Lord presently upholds and sustains His creation. So He, up, he upholds the universe by the word of His power. Six, the son made purification for sins. So some of these statements here about the son describe who he is, that is the essence of his nature, his character, his being. And others of these are functional. They describe the work that he is doing or the work that he has done. And the description here that he made purification for sins, this is the ultimate work that he accomplished. This is the gospel message. Later on in Hebrews, the author expounds on the ways that Jesus is superior to the Old Testament priests and the Old Testament sacrifices. His purification for sins is done. It is complete. It is finalized. It can't be undone. This is the gospel message. Jesus made purification for sins for all who trust in Him. So if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, your sins have been atoned for past tense. It's done. It's foolish for us to wallow in guilt over our past sins because purification for them has already been made by the Son. If you're not a Christian, if you're not in Christ, consider that the only purification for sins that God will accept is that offered by His Son. You cannot pay God back for your sins You cannot gather enough positive energy to cover up your uh, wrong deeds with an abundance of good deeds. If you're not following Jesus, repent of your sins so that you can know the purification for sins that he has already made for all who trust in him. Then the seventh statement here about Jesus, the end of verse 3, the son sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That is, he finished his work. It's done. There's finality it is accomplished. So uh, the author here has given us this high and glorious portrait of who Jesus is and what he has done. This is the one through whom God has spoken. Think with me about what all of this means for us. We live in a world into which God has spoken through his son. And most people either don't know this, so we ought to tell them, or they don't care. We live in a time and place in which most people live and most of life goes on as if God had not spoken. Think about the way that people were described in the days of Noah. That people went on marrying and giving in marriage, just going about their lives. God had spoken to Noah. Noah had warned, but people went on living as if God had not spoken. And so it is today. But the reality remains That God has spoken. And because of this, I don't have to search for meaning inside of myself. I don't have to search for answers out there to the mysteries of life. I don't have to accomplish certain things to prove that I have worth. Because God has spoken, it means that the chaos and the difficulty of life are not overwhelming. Things are not hopeless, but there is the possibility of peace and safety and hope and even a happy ending with all things being made new for those who listen to his words. Can I imagine a man trapped at the bottom of a deep well, stuck in the mud down there, no way of freeing himself, no way of climbing back out. And then he hears a voice from the top in the opening of the well calling down, don't worry, I'll get you out. Our hopeless situation has been filled with hope because God has spoken and all things will work together for good for those who love him and trust in his son. Friend, if you are not yet trusting in Christ for your salvation, you will find plenty of company. You'll find plenty of other people. You'll indeed find an entire world that invites you to join their search for meaning, for truth, and for answers. But you are not going to find what you're looking for. You're not going to find what you're looking for by being true to yourself, by feeding your sexual cravings, by earning enough money by doing enough good for the environment. But if you will listen to what God has spoken by his son, your search will be over. So God has spoken by his son. Second point of our outline, uh, God exalted the son. God exalted the son. And this is the, uh, the biggest uh, chunk of the passage here, verses 4 through 14. Now, in these verses, we see that the Son is not just another messenger from God, but He is the exalted one. He is the better messenger, and specifically, He is superior to the angels. So, Jesus is the better messenger, superior to the angels. So, why does this need to be stated? Why does it need to be explained that Jesus is superior to the angels? A couple things we can say about this. There may perhaps have been some over-fascination with angels in parts of the early church at this time. We know that uh, in the Jewish literature from the time between the Old and New Testament, there was a heavy emphasis on angels. Uh, Many Jews considered angels to be both God's messengers and Israel's protectors. It also seems the notion of personal angels or guardian angels first kind of popped up during this time. So that might be part of what the author has in mind here. But I think if we look at the the text of Hebrews itself, it seems that uh, there's something else going on here uh, that the author is doing. He is making the case that the new covenant is better than the old covenant. So let me explain this. Uh, If you glance at uh, chapter 2, verse 2, the author uses the phrase there, the message declared by angels. And he's referring there to the, the old covenant, the revelation of God prior to Jesus, He's saying there that the Old Covenant, uh, the message brought by angels, was true and trustworthy. How much more, then, is the New Covenant message, which is brought by the Son, uh, true and trustworthy? So the idea is that angels were mediators of the Old Covenant, and Jesus is the mediator of the New Covenant. And this, this may be something that seems strange. We don't uh, perhaps think about it often. It is other places in Scripture. So, for example, Acts 7.53 Stephen speaks of the law as delivered by angels. Or in Galatians 3.19, Paul writes about the law that was put in place through angels. So it seems the discussion about angels here in Hebrews 1 is not just because the audience was having a problem with angel worship, but it's because the angels were the mediators of the old covenant. And Hebrews, as it unfolds, is going to make the argument that Christ and the new covenant are better than angels in the Old Covenant. So uh, it is a little, uh, maybe a a new thing to consider, but the idea really simple that uh, angels brought the Old Covenant, Christ brought the New Covenant, Christ is superior to the angels, therefore don't go back to the Old Covenant, don't go back uh, to the old revelation that was brought by the angels. So we might wonder now, okay, I get the argument he's making, why would anybody go back to the Old Covenant anyway? I mean, have you ever thought about the fact that there was a point in time where if you were a follower of the true God, you had to consider things like animal sacrifices? And you don't have to do that now. Why would anybody want to go back to uh, the old way of doing things? Well, uh, think about it for a moment. Uh, First thing we can say, just from a very human perspective, have you ever tried to go from an old routine to a new routine, even on a simple thing? Imagine that uh, you realize you've been staying up too late at night and you want to start going to bed at 10 o'clock instead of midnight. So you're like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this. And so the first few days go okay, but then you remember how nice it was at the end of a long day just to lay on the sofa, and kind of watch YouTube. Then if you're a baseball fan, the baseball playoffs start, and it's like every night there's a game that just goes late. And you're like, well, I can't go to bed at 10 or I'll miss the game. And so, you know, a few days, maybe a week or two in, you find that you're back to the old way of doing things. So there might be some of that going on. Uh, it's even more than that, I think. Um, One pastor, uh, Richard Phillips, in his commentary on Hebrews, uh, he uh, explains what he imagines to be the, the situation here. He says, it's hard for us to understand how remarkable it was for the first generation of Christians to put their faith in Jesus Christ. We can imagine the kind of arguments that unbelieving Jews would have made to dissuade their new faith. They would have pointed out that Jesus was just a man, the son of a poor carpenter from Nazareth. They may have pointed out that Jesus was just one of many zealous leaders of his day. Worst of all, his failure as a Messiah was proved by his humiliating execution. The fact that he was crucified proved that he was rejected by God. Jesus may have been a decent enough man, but he obviously got carried away with his short-lived fame. And the real problem was his fanatical disciples who made these outlandish claims about his resurrection and started a heretical religion that actually worshipped the poor man. You can imagine the tug for these first christians to think our our jewish faith has been good enough for god's people for for centuries it's been good enough for god's people why should it be any different for us today you know at least in the past with making sacrifices we could see the sacrifice being offered for our sins and be confident that our sins were atoned for now i'm supposed to just kind of invisibly trust this guy named jesus that i've never met And add to this the reality that uh, Judaism was a legal religion in the the Roman Empire and had at least that level of respect. Christianity didn't even enjoy that initially. So, uh, it was viewed kind of as a new upstart religion. So, you can just imagine as human beings the the feel, the pull that uh, these early Christians would have had to go back to the tried and true Old Covenant, the message brought by angels. As you read the rest of Hebrews, it seems that this uh, apparent struggle was going on in the lives of the original audience. Maintaining faith in Christ was making life difficult for them, and so Hebrews repeatedly warns them, don't fall away, keep believing in Jesus. So that's what's going on here in chapter 1, verses 4 through 14. The author is, is building his argument that Jesus, the messenger who brought the new covenant, is superior to the angels, the messengers of the Old Covenant. And he does that here by offering proof from the Old Testament. We have in these verses a beautiful demonstration of how Christians read the Old Testament with Jesus in view. We can rightly say that the Old Testament's about Jesus. With the Bible in our hands today, we let the New Testament guide us in interpreting the Old Testament. This is a reminder of why we need the Old Testament, because it is the foundation of and the support structure for the new. So a moment ago, remember back, we saw the seven descriptions of Jesus, and then uh, this is kind of cool because now we see seven uh, proofs from the Old Testament. So we had seven descriptions of the Son, now we have seven proofs of uh, of uh, from the Old Testament. So this is where, hopefully this slide will be helpful because some of these quotations are a little bit long and it, it may be easy to like, lose the big picture here. So I've uh, just got listed out here, if you can see it, the seven passages. And these may be footnoted in your Bible, uh, if you've got a Bible that, that shows these. Uh, seven passages, and then the idea that the author is communicating with each of them. And again, this is something you could go back this week and, uh, and study more closely, go read these Old Testament passages in their entirety. Let me just mention, though, each of them briefly, the argument being made, uh, starting in verse 5. Uh, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. This is from Psalm 2 tells us that Psalm 2 is prophetic uh, reference to Jesus, and it highlights that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, Again in verse 5, God never said to the angels, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This is 2 Samuel 7. His first application was to David as the king of Israel. Again here showing that Jesus, the Messiah, is the ultimate king, and again a son. Uh, Verse 6 speaks of Jesus as the firstborn, This seems to be drawing from Deuteronomy 32, 43, also perhaps from Psalm 97, 7. The big idea is that the sun is clearly superior to the angels because the angels worship the sun. If the angels worship the sun, it makes no sense to uh, give your allegiance to the angels rather than to the sun when they worship Jesus. Verse 6 speaks of Uh, I'm sorry, verse 7, we have a description of angels from Psalm 104 as ministers. That's contrasted with the Son in verses 8 and 9. They were ministers, the angels were ministers, but the Son is the anointed king. Uh, The sixth piece of evidence, verses 10 through 12, uh, gets at the eternal nature of the Son. He was the one who laid the foundation of the earth. He existed prior to creation and will continue to exist even when the creation has worn out and has changed. His years will have no end. Then finally, in verse 13, uh, a quotation from Psalm 110. To which of the angels has God ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Psalm 110 is quoted in the New Testament more than any other uh, Old Testament passage. Uh, In Hebrews alone, uh, a number of times it appears. Uh, So this psalm is highly significant, and it's used here to make the case that Jesus, the Son, enjoys a, a status in a position and ultimate authority that no angel could ever possess. So it's kind of the capstone piece of evidence to show that Jesus is better. So Jesus is not just another messenger from God. He is not one of the prophets, as Islam would claim. He is not a son of God, as Hinduism might allow. No, he is the exalted one, greater even than the angels. Christian, think about what the exalted and victorious nature of the Son means for you. If your life and your salvation and your hope are tied up in Jesus, and they are, your life, your hope, your salvation is all in Jesus. And if Jesus has been exalted by the Father above the angels, if Jesus has been given a throne that will never end, then your salvation is unshakable. God has exalted the Son permanently, for all eternity, and this guarantees our salvation. This secures our salvation with absolute certainty. If you've not yet trusted in Christ, just consider: God has lifted up and exalted Jesus, the Son. What will it mean for you if you fail to bow down and worship to the one whom even angels worship? Submit to the sun now while you still can. And this brings us to the third and final point. Pay attention to the sun. Pay attention to the sun. And this is in chapter 2, verse 1. You know, sometimes we, we study a section of scripture and we may finish reading it, and you're like, huh, I wonder what I'm supposed to do with that. And it, it may not be clear at first what to do with what we've read. There's other times it's super clear. And um, this is one of those places where chapter 2, verse 1, tells us exactly what we're supposed to do in light of the things we have just read. And in fact, it's such a a simple application that we might read right over it if we're not careful. So look there, chapter 2, verse 1, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. That's it. That's the application. Pay much closer attention to what you've heard. If you've ever spent an afternoon at the beach, you've probably had the experience of setting up your your little home base there on the beach. When you first get there, you know, you drag out all the stuff, and you set up the umbrella and the chairs and the cooler. You got your little little spot set up, and then maybe you go out in the water. Maybe you're just floating there, kind of relaxing, looking out at the, the ocean. Maybe you're throwing a ball with the kids. Uh, swimming a little bit, and then after a while you decide you're going to head back up, get something to drink and to relax. And so you start coming out of the water, and you look up at the beach, and you're like, hold on, where's all my stuff? And you're like, Where? like I don't see it anywhere. And you finally realize like, your, your little umbrella and chair is way down there, and somehow you floated way off over here uh, while you were not intending to go anywhere. It, uh, the, the place you started out didn't move, but you were paying attention to other things, and so you drifted. It's a similar idea here. You don't, have to, you don't have to renounce Jesus. You don't have to deconstruct your faith in order to be in eternal spiritual danger. All you have to do is stop paying attention. Brothers and sisters, we must pay attention to the things we have heard. We must never assume that, all right, I heard it. I believed it. Check. I'm good. Let's move on to other stuff. No, that's not what we're called to here. At the the beach, you you keep your eye on the umbrella and the chair, and you're constantly aware of where it is, and if you start to drift a little bit, you kind of correct back. Here in Hebrews, you pay attention to what you have heard, the message proclaimed by the Son. Don't focus your eyes on your children and how they may or may not turn out. Pay attention to what you have heard from God. Don't be mesmerized with the success that you want to have in school or in your job. Pay attention to the gospel. Don't fixate on the sufferings and difficulties that you experience in life. You think about Peter when he started to look at the waves all around him instead of looking at Jesus. He started to sink. Don't don't look at how hard you've got it. Look at Jesus Don't fall into the trap of thinking that you need some new revelation from God in order to, uh, for his truth to be applied to your life that, okay, the Bible's good, but it's kind of hard to understand, so there must be some other way that I can understand this. You you don't need uh, like a devotional that imagines what Jesus might have said to you, and you start to feed on that instead of feeding on the word of God. No, pay attention to what you have heard. Think about those times when you especially feel the need for help and guidance in life. Yes, seek advice and encouragement and counsel from other Christians, but ultimately, you don't need to pray for a sign from God. He's already spoken to you. As the the hymn writer put it, what more can he say than to you he hath said? He has spoken. He has given it to you. And Hebrews doesn't just say pay attention, it says we must pay much closer attention. It's like he underlines it, underlines it again, and then highlights it and circles it. Pay attention. This implies effort on our part, it implies constantly recalibrating and refocusing and always correcting back to stay on point. This is never one and done. This is why we listen to the preaching of the word every seven days. This is why we seek to read the Bible in our homes every day. That's why we gather Wednesday night classes and we don't just sit around and talk about the Bible. We actually look at the Bible and we study it and we diagram it and we highlight it and we ask questions about it and we discuss what it means and how we can apply it. That's why we teach our kids to memorize scripture, train them how to read the Bible for themselves. That's why we read the Bible through in a year. Then having done that, we do it again next year. And we do it again the year after that. We want to pay attention. We want to constantly ask ourselves, what does the Bible say? Because God has spoken to us. And if we fail to pay attention, we will drift away. Students, don't wait until you're older to start reading the Bible. You might be in the room, you might be six years old. Are there any six-year-olds in here? Six, seven years old? Raise your hand. There's a couple. Okay. You can read the Bible. You can start reading the Bible now. If you're in middle school, start memorizing the Bible. Don't just memorize like a, a verse. Memorize entire uh, chapters of the Bible. You can do that now. Don't wait until you're older. You know, some of you are going to go to college and you're going to go to grad school And you'll be confronted with people who think that you're childish or you're superstitious or, I mean, they may think you're just plain dumb because you love the Bible so much and you pay such close attention to it. Don't let that distract you. Pay closer attention to what you've heard. Many of us, presumably, are somewhere in the middle of our lives, right? So we've heard the gospel, we've believed it, got that, work is never-ending, Kids, schedules are always full. We're always tired. Maybe this is just me. (laughs) I don't think it is. I think this this is the experience of life. But the temptation is to think we're good because we generally know what the Bible says and we believe it. No, don't be satisfied with that. Keep digging, keep reading, keep studying, memorizing, discussing. It's been said that nobody on their deathbed ever thinks back, man, I spent too much time reading the Bible. Nobody thinks that. We're living right now in the days that we will think back to at the end of our lives. Don't waste them by failing to pay attention to what God has said. Now, some of us are near to the end of our lives and will be with the Lord sooner than others. Be encouraged. Pay closer attention to what God has said to you It will be the strength, it will be the hope that carries you across the finish line and into the presence of your Savior. It will not fail you. For all of us, God spoke by the Son. God exalted the Son. So we can hear the echoes of what the Father said at the transfiguration. This is my Son. Listen to him. Let's all commit as a church to pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that by God's grace we won't drift away. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, realize the hopeless state we would remain in if you had not come to us, if you had not spoken to us. And we thank you that you didn't just speak, but you sent your Son. Lord, we pray that we would not be so foolish as to neglect your son and his message, to listen to other gospels, to start to believe that we can atone for our own sins, that we don't need the simple truths of your word, the simple message of your son. Lord, would you keep us from these things by keeping us in your word, keeping us listening and obeying, delighting in, and finding joy in life in the things that we have heard. We pray that this would be a church by your grace that is marked by these things. We ask this in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus.